another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Well, I think so. Anyway. <laughs> so, this week on Chris Reed's book, we are going to try and fit in three chapters. Uh, chapters 36, 37, and 38. We are getting close to the end of the actual part of the actual main body of this book. And editing forward... Um, it's getting to the part that I really like. You know, the the real zenith of this book. So, I hope that you enjoy these as well. But before we get to that, I am Chris Pullman. This is my podcast where I read to you, my loyal listeners, from my first novel, uh, variously known as for, uh, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars or Chaos's Beginning. It is an attempt by me to make this podcast a little more accessible to the wider public uh, and to get my name out there, to get this book out there. So if you would like to uh, hear the rest of these, because again I am reading the chapters in order, so if you'd like to go back and listen up to this podcast, which I encourage you to do, you can do via iTunes or your favorite podcast app, search for Chris Pullman or Chris Reed's book. If you search for Chris Pullman, you might also come across another podcast of mine, Whiskey and Mash. That's where I and my mother-in-law, Gloria, uh, review or uh, watch a couple episodes of the Mash TV show and then review it on air while having uh, a whiskey drink. So, if you're interested in MASH, I encourage you to also take a look at that podcast. It's newer compared to this one, but I think we're making some good strides. If, after listening to this podcast, you have some comments on it, feel free to hook up with me via, via my... Uh, I'm saying some of these words so weird tonight. <laughs> hook up with me via my social media listed over on the website, narclaninc.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter currently. Uh, I'll probably jump on some more of those as time goes by. Right now my priority is recording these, editing the books, because I have three more ready to be edited so that I can keep doing this podcast, and also redoing the website, because it is in need of some updates. But if you don't want to head over there, and if you don't, or if you don't have social media, you can email me at chrisreadsbooks at narclanic.com. That's Chris Reed's book, not books, singular, Chris Reed's book at narclaninc.com. That will come right to me and I will read every email that comes through. I will do my best to reply to all of them that I get. Uh, if I get enough, I will take a break out of these and do a mailbag episode so I can respond to each one individually. In the meantime, let's go ahead and get to these chapters. Chapter 36, Between Lovers, 37, Professor Christopher, and 38, Dreams. Chapter 36, Between Lovers. Adam, listen to yourself. This is not what we were meant to be doing here. What choice was left me? 
Adam asked. There's always a choice, and you've chosen wrong, she replied. Jessica, I welcomed you here to my side because I thought I could trust you, Adam said. And I came because I thought that you were still the man I was in love with. Not some power-hungry megal hungry megalomaniac, Jessica replied. I am not power-hungry. James and Meng and Eric are power-hungry. They have abandoned the true path in order to lie down at the feet of the new Terran government. I'm building a base from which I can do good, from which I can help these people, Adam retorted. Jessica shook her head, hearing the desperation and confusion in his voice. Adam, these are our friends. You should know them better. They're doing what's best. No! Adam raged, jerking to standing. Beginning to pace their small room, I have seen the future. My way is the true path, the only one that will lead to the future we all seek, not theirs. Seen the future? Jessica asked with a laugh. It elicited a sideways glare from Adam. Impossible, she added. Adam's glare seemed to burn into her soul. I should know. I've been around Ming longer than you have. You should also know that I absorb powers, and I've absorbed his, Adam replied. You borrow parts of powers. You may have fragmentary prescience, but no more than that. The only nanitic on earth with full prescience is Meng, Jessica commented. What I lack in ability, I make up for in amplification, Adam grumbled. That argument again. No matter how much you amplify such a minuscule amount of power, it does not equate to what Meng has. You're filling in the gaps in your visions with wishful thinking, babe. She's wrong, Adam fumed to himself. I have even perfected Claire's power, and so sensed my own perfected abilities. Goodell was wrong. I am the completed system in itself. Maybe you're right, Jess, Adam said, acting reluctantly passive. <laughs> I protected her mind this long from our meld. But I see that time has ended, he thought to himself. Look, I'm sorry, I just... I don't want you out here to get hurt is all. I guess I was just trying to chase you off without having to say it. You know how I am about that. She did. And this was a farce. Adam had never been afraid to share his feelings toward her. She knew he had another motive. Can... Can we just let this go for tonight? Get a fresh start in the morning? He asked. After all, what could one night hurt? Sure, Jessica conceded, knowing she just needed to play for time to find out what this was all about. Great. Look, I just need to take care of a few things in the HQ, then I'll be back. As he went, Jessica was left with the feeling that something monstrously bad had just begun. She will play the perfect spy back at TDF Command, Chaos thought to himself as he walked swiftly to the Naninic Hive core control room to remove the sink blocks Adam had put around Jessica. On the upshot, we'll never have another argument like that one once the Nanites are through with their reprogramming. Thank goodness she's not Melinda or else this would never have worked. All it took was a couple of keystrokes to set in motion the process of converting Jessica into a drone, stripping away her free will. All too easy, Chaos thought, to do such simple... do such to simple-minded humans. If only she had been like me.
Chapter 37 Professor Christopher He taught, you know. It was one of those introductions Eric tended to make after our breaks, as though he were simply picking up on a forgotten conversation. Who taught where? I asked, looking up at Eric. James Christopher. He taught at the Martian University of New Green Bay, Eric replied. Uh, what? I responded. MUNGB was only about 120 years old, and James Christopher was 500 years dead. Did I mumble? Eric asked. Eric, I'm sorry, but James has been dead for hundreds of years, I clarified. Of course he has. So what? Eric's matter-of-fact way of saying it made me pause momentarily. Well, if he was, has been dead longer than the university has been open, I trailed off. After waiting for a few silent seconds, Eric repeated, So what? Eric, he was dead, I said. But he lives up here, Eric said, pointing at his head. Everything that he was is here. So are you saying that he taught through you? I asked. Could approach it rationalization, but no. I've only done it twice, but it is possible for me to switch consciousnesses completely. For a time, I let James take over this body, Eric said. I took a moment to really absorb what Eric had just said. You let him take over your body. Well, yeah, I guess the way I view things, this is just a body, not really mine, but from your point of view, yes. He took over control of my body for about 30 years served as the first chair of the Natural and Applied Sciences at MUNGB, Eric stated. And nobody questioned it. Being taught by the former co-leader of the TDF, I asked. Who would know? Eric commented, shrugging. He had a very valid point. Up until a few days ago, no known images of any of the progenitors were known to exist. Okay, but if the government is keeping things from your time so tightly under scrutiny, it surely a man as brilliant as you've indicated James was would have been noticed. A secondary thought occurred to me then. Did, did he look like himself then? I mean, uh, did, did you look like him, your body? It was a cumbersome question to ask. He did take on his own visage, yes. I've used it once or twice myself, Eric replied. After watching how suddenly Eric's features changed over the last few days, I didn't doubt for a moment he could make his appearance resemble that of James Christopher. So, what happened to you while he was piloting, I asked. As good a term as I've ever come up with, piloting. I simply became part of his background mental noise, such as it is, as he normally was for me. And to answer your other question, he flew low under the radar. Instead of making a lot of new discoveries and innovations himself, 
He used collaborative efforts with other professors, graduate and undergrad students to hide his involvement. He always let others take full credit, often advancing their careers in the process. The people he worked with were grateful and so never pushed the issue, Eric said. What were some of his projects, I queried? Wormhole communication, galactic drive, those were the big two. Really? It's because of James that we have real-time interplanetary communication and near-light propulsion? I asked. Yep, him, his colleagues and students. He'd always see the solutions the quickest, then give those working with him just enough to stumble upon the answer on their own. Can you explain those technologies to me? I asked, genuinely hoping Eric could. With my background, they were always something that had fascinated me, but which I could never wrap my head around. Okay, let, let's try. All of them really are interconnected, Eric began. So I'd heard, I said. With wormhole communication, the trick really is joining two black holes. Joining black holes? I asked. Yeah, but with different emphasis. Joining black holes, Eric replied. I mean, are you saying that the process involves creating black holes? Sure does, which, by the way, is easier than you think, Eric stated. Remember the mini-star in the kitchen is doing fine. Under controlled conditions, creating and joining black holes is relatively safe. I had forgotten about the mini-star, how it was fed by wormholes. How? I asked. A space contractor, or space denser, if you prefer. You see, once you get space dense enough, a black hole forms naturally, sort of like a tear in space. Same thing happens if you put too much weight on a piece of fabric, Eric said. And that's related to galactic drive how? I asked. Galactic drive relies on the same space contracting and space exam expanding gravity generators as we use to make wormholes. For spaceships, it's a fairly straightforward process. You contract space in front of the ship and slowly expand it to a low density field directly aft. The net effect is that the ship basically causes space to flow backward over its body. I know some people, probably you included judging by that look on your face, believe ships move through space like fish through water. That's not the case anymore. Because of galactic drive, ships literally move space around them and remain stationary. Alcibiar had it almost correct, you see. James just needed to tweak a few things here and there. Eric sat silently, allowing me to process what he had said. Best part, he began again, is that the space moves around the ship along with everything in it. Thus, ships no longer have use of deflector shields such as had been previously needed. Since all matter resides in space and space moves around the ship, there's no risk of anything floating around in space, striking the ship, and creating a problem. But ships are made of matter, I said. If all matter resides in space, what, what about the ship? A sort of 
independent space-time is artificially created around the ship, Eric replied. So, ships drag a certain amount of uh, local space-time with them wherever they go? I asked. Eric thought about it a moment, finally saying, Essentially, yes. The amount of space beside that taken up by the ship is negligible, though. And in the end, it doesn't make much difference, as any space it takes with it is just reabsorbed by normal space-time at its destination. Like taking a bucket of water out of one part of a lake and dumping it back in at another. Conservation laws still apply. So what about planets? I asked. Pardon? Eric asked in reply. Do courses have to be plotted around planets? I mean, contracting space on or in a planet would create some problems, wouldn't it? Couldn't... I, I don't know. I began my mind trying to find a proper way to put my thoughts into words. Couldn't buildings literally uh, smash together and squash people between them or something? Eric smiled. You also never had a course in non-Euclidean geometry, I see. When a galactic drive ship passes through a solid object, it does leave contracted, highly dense space in its wake. However, think of it this way. If there were a ruler in that space, it would also appear contracted. Ten centimeters would still be ten centimeters. So, by relativity, nothing changed. In other words, no. Relative to things around it, a building wouldn't move at all. If you found the proper perspective from which to view the event, though, things would appear closer. Until you tried to actually measure them, Eric explained. I blinked a few times, saying, I don't get it. You will. It'll just take time, Eric replied. Okay, sure. One thing about that, though. I said to Eric, letting my lack of understanding sit for the moment. Creating communication wormholes in galactic drive seem very similar. That's true, they are very closely related. With galactic drive, though, we are creating the worm in the form of the ship, rather than the worm's hole. Both are a form of tunneling through space. With the wormhole, though, we create the entire passage through space at once. A passage, I would add, that remains open as long as the connected event horizons are stable. The ship creates a temporary tunnel in space by using lower gradients of dilation. It only expands and contracts space enough to forcibly move it around the ship. After the ship passes, space naturally returns to its equilibrium state and density. Okay, I replied. Once more, I felt like a student, information taught to me going right over my head. I'm trying to comprehend all of this. For a non-scientist, it's a lot to take in, Eric said. Indeed, I agreed. Basically, the wormhole, with maintenance, is permanent, but the path the ship takes through space is not. Close enough. Okay, it made a little more sense to me. I guess another question would be this. A ship's path through space is directional, but if a wormhole is created to orient in a certain direction relative to one planet, say Mars, 
on the other end likewise oriented toward Earth. What happens as the planets orbit differently around the Sun? The relative positions in space change. Very true, Eric said, nodding. But the thing is that wormholes, as does a galactic drive ship, cut through space in such a way that it doesn't affect the path taken. Think about it this way. A tunnel is cut through a mountain, one side to the other, straight through. After some years, one side of the mountain is developed into a small community. Some years later, on the opposite side of the mountain, there's a rock slide. All the while, nature in all her forms is subtly altering the landscape via snow, rain, wind, tree roots, and other changes that come with the shifting of seasons and flora. Has the tunnel been at all changed by this? Assuming it wasn't destroyed or blocked, of course. I thought about it and then replied, no. The tunnel would remain as it was, cutting straight through the mountain. So it is with the wormhole. In a very basic way, it tunnels straight through space, but is otherwise unaffected by space. So even when its two ends move relative to each other, it remains intact, Eric said. If wormholes can create such permanent and instant tunnels through space, why haven't we made ones capable of carrying ships through the solar system, I asked. Eric replied, Technology isn't there yet, unfortunately. We simply don't have space density generators power enough to create the size black holes needed. Why does the size of a tunnel matter, I asked. Ever try to stick a watermelon in a chipmunk hole? You can grunt and push all you want, but it just isn't going to happen. No, we would need larger, more powerful equipment to create big enough holes for passage of ships, Eric responded. But the equipment we have now is sufficient for the passage of ships through space, I stated. Space around ships, Eric corrected. Like I said, ships use much weaker forms of the same density fields to enable their intraspace journeys. The tech is being constantly improved, but still isn't at a level to obsolete galactic drive for interplanetary travel. What about just like, um, I once more tried to find a way to ably express my thoughts a train station. Wormholes just big enough for people to pass through. Why haven't such come about? Eric pondered momentarily. It's a good question. Some scientists believe that matter can only travel through a wormhole one way at a time. If that's true, trying to send matter through both ways could be catastrophic, leading to the destruction of both sets. As such, an opening wormhole an open wormhole on two planets would be bad. A faint breeze from one end could obliterate a person coming through from the other. But that's only true if such scientists are right. Radio waves don't disrupt each other as they can propagate without interfering with matter, so those don't tell us much about how matter passes through wormholes. The research is still ongoing in the labs where our original test wormholes reside. So what you're saying is that it may be a while before I can just go down to the wormhole station to get to a noon lunch in Paris on Earth. With an amused smile, Eric replied, yeah, that's about the size of it. And those both came about because of James Christopher, I asked. Sure did, Eric said, sipping on his water. 
A question has been bugging me this whole time, Eric. What was it like for you letting James pilot your body? I asked. Interesting, and also hard to describe, Eric said. As I mentioned, I became part of his background, just as he had been mine. In ways, it was like going to a sports stadium and watching an athlete perform. You know, you're not him, but you still feel excited when he hits the ball. Your heart still races, as does his when he runs the bases, but there's always the real and distinct knowledge that it's not you in charge down there. My studies, my research on the TDF and Atmo largely focused on James Christopher and his influence on Earth's history. To realize that I missed him by less than a century and a half, I mused aloud. Eric smiled at that. He closed his eyes then. The smile remained the same, but everything else about him changed. His clothing subtly altered to a tight fitting short-sleeved shirt sandals appeared on his feet and his pants were replaced by these ancient blue jeans his hair faded through to a light auburn his eyes to a strikingly deep blue his chest had expanded his arms became solid masses of muscle his hair was short cropped spiked and pointing forward at me over his forehead hello james came a gentle voice, a deep timbre about it. The richness inherent in his voice brought of its own, a sense of trust and calm. I composed myself, hoping for the answer I sought when I asked, To whom am I speaking? I am James Michael Christopher. Call me James, he replied. Fumbling in the attempt, I, I leaned forward, extending a hand toward the man across the coffee table. James, it, it's an honor. Part of my mind quickly flashed that this couldn't possibly be real. That was quickly silenced, for I no longer doubted anything I saw or heard in this house. As James shook my hand, I quivered in excitement. It was him, James Christopher. James leaned back in the chair, stretched his arms, and looked them over. It's a curious thing being a real body again. It's different in there than out here. You almost start to forget what it is to be flesh and blood after a while. But that's really beside the point. As long as I'm here, what can I do for you? I... Um... I began, still in shock from his presence, trying to regain composure. I said, well... Uh, if you had read my findings, I would ask... Uh, I would ask you if they were accurate. A half-grin showed on his face. Eric read your report. He found a copy on the university's network. Would have been hard to find for anyone else, though. Even with James as the person now before me, some of the familiar chorus voice started to find its way through. So, what's your opinion of it, I asked. Well, with almost 500 years intervening, along with that level of knowledge suppression that accompanied that amount of time, I would say you did a very remarkable job. There are certainly holes you, you could, could now fill in, in, corrections you could make. Though I must tell you, he said, doing so would be rather, rather superfluous, superfluous now, now, wouldn't it? 
what you'll be able to give to the Atmo Underground community will go far beyond what you possibly imagined you could do back then. James Azara, the attitude he exuded was a friendlier one compared to Eric's scholarly and professional air. James's face tilted slightly then, a quizzical smirk spreading across his lips. We do recognize you, said both James in the chorus. Then in just his voice, James asked me, Do you know your lineage? Some of it. Uh, some has been lost to time, I replied. What part do you know? he asked. Uh, my paternal family came from Earth about a hundred years ago. They were originally from Wisconsin, I, I think. Though, though I don't know specifics. They settled here during the Mars Gilded Age, I replied. But you know nothing of your mother's lineage? he asked. I know they were here for longer than my father's family. Beyond that, no. James leaned back and nodded slowly, studying me as he did so. Someday soon you will know. We have some very interesting plans for you, you know, James added. He cocked his head then as if listening to someone standing just behind his right shoulder. Yes, I agree. He does re bear a striking resemblance to them both. My heart quickened then. If he were communing with the other minds in Eric's mind, that meant... I agree. James, he said, returning his full attention to me. I have been noticed as missing, and so must return. It was good meeting you in person. We'll talk again soon. Before I could say goodbye, James quickly faded, the body before me once more taking on the familiar form of an older Eric Pullman. You're welcome, Eric said, a very large smile on his face. Chapter 38 Dreams I wish I could relate what follows in some easier way to understand. However, how understandable are dreams anyway, but the dreams I had while at Eric's house, secreting myself from the censors, were among both the most vivid and oddest of my life. Not only that, I maintain that for the entirety of my slumber I dreamt something nigh impossible as I slept for some seven hours the first night. Even as I write these words, I find renewed doubt in my own mind that I remember things correctly. And yet, as I try to remember, every last detail of every dream comes rushing back to my conscious mind. Every shape, shadow, color, word, expression, inflection, implicit piece of information, and smell are as real as my note tab before me. Seven hours of dreams laid out in the detail I recall would be a novel of epic proportion in and of itself. So I'm going to do my best here to relate just one, the last one of the night. The new dream formed around me. I knew with certainty that I was at a place where a battle could be, where the meeting below me to turn out wrong. The location itself was nameless, falling between this city and that. Chaos had gone on his internal pogrom, his cleansing spree, which left his armies leaderless. Some units, such as the one camped out before us, were disobeying not only the government's orders, but also those of Chaos himself, and were holding position and refusing to disband. 
TDF forces had moved in silently, completely surrounding the camp without being detected. I now looked through a pair of binoculars. Nowhere near as sophisticated as a computer-augmented image, such as the Elite saw, but useful enough to inform me of the camp's layout. Five sentry teams roamed the perimeter, their patterns clear after a few days' observation. Field tents were erected around central fire pits. It wasn't that they didn't fear TDF airstrikes. They simply understood we would think it uncouth and waste. We believed in negotiations and persuasion when possible, something airstrikes clearly removed from possibility. The whole scene below me resembled some sort of odd cross between a Civil War camp and that out of a mid-20th century science fiction novel. The tents were advanced enough so as to provide shelter from the harshest natural conditions, domed to stand up against even the strongest winds and heaviest snows, but simple enough to allow for rapid setup and teardown. A large dining fly anchored the camp at its center, field tables set up on cleared ground beneath it. By my estimate, some 300 personnel inhabited this forgotten patch of ground. Some slept, some kept themselves occupied with more demanding and active endeavors of the nighttime variety. Clumps here and there could be seen around various campfires, drinking what spirits they still had, every so often one getting up and attempting to stumble off to his bunk. Under the dining fly, I could see high-ranking NCOs. Without being able to make out the words, I yet knew they were holding council. These non-coms were the ones holding their troops together. Their officers had been called away by chaos, who then consumed them. These men and women knew chaos held no malice toward them for the failure and cowardice of their officers. So they held firm to show their faith in him, in his plan, as they awaited further orders. I knew they waited for something that would never come. We had sent couriers to them daily for a week, seeking an audience with them. They had spat at the idea, proclaiming that Chaos would see their loyalty and reward them after his final victory. The manner in which some of his lower-ranking troops conducted themselves spoke otherwise. Order had visibly become harder for the NCOs to maintain. Supplies had ceased weeks ago. No radio messages of any kind had reached them in two weeks. No mail, no internet. No word from home. Food was running low, as was morale. So the highest of the NCOs held counsel to determine the next step. They suspected we had a force in the area, but had not yet spotted us. Positions of ours were trained on critical points in their camp. On signal, we could cleanly eliminate nearly half of their troops before they knew they were under attack. The word, though, was to hold and observe. And what a spectacle this night was becoming. Even as a warm breeze, bringing with it the smell of pine, oak, and cedar, tousled my hair, the figures below were growing all the more animated. The highest ranking of them, judging by his position at the head of the group, was getting beginning to point accusingly at several others around him. One jerked to her feet, her shoulders strong, as she was instantly restrained by several of her comrades. There was strength in this one. Visible as she pulled the crowd, grabbing her forward a couple of steps. The leader had risen purposefully, strongly, and had his hand ready on the pommel of his knife. I could see who among those gathered were his strongest supporters, as they too were prepared for a fight. 
My hopes were raised for a quick end to this here and now. Even being late in summer, the mosquitoes and bugs were interminably pesky. The woman was lowered back to her seat where she managed one more rebellious outburst before going silent. The man in charge passed his gaze around those before him. He was saying something then that I couldn't make out. The woman muttered something, apparently, one thing too much. I barely made out the movement as the man flashed his hand from his belt toward the woman. The moon shone off the sharp edges of a tumbling object, but briefly, before it buried itself in her neck. Half the group sprang back to their feet, knives drawn. The other half, the man's supporters, were ready with hands on knives, but remained seated. The man had held his right hand out at hip level, palm down, towards his supporters. Very slowly, the man spoke. As slowly, those who had risen sheathed their knives, lowering themselves back to sitting. No one touched the woman's body. The man began talking along a different tract, pointing with his free hand at the hills where we hid in cover. At one point, his gesture passed directly at me, Stone-like stillness gripped me. I could feel the other two observers at my post tense just as quickly. We knew they could not have seen us, but still felt exposed by the pointing hand. As the hand passed away from us, I could feel a tipping point forming. My instincts always being reliably on target, I patted the shoulder of Neva at my right, gesturing at the radio. Taking my eyes off the binoculars for a moment to look her way, I checked to make sure she understood. Our lieutenant knew I was reliable. Neva nodded as she moved back to pass the word to him. It would quickly climb the chain of, to our captain. I knew, as Neva little more than grunted and grumbled, using her tracheal-mounted mics, that troops all around the camp were being roused to action stations, fingers on triggers and eyes downrange. Returning my gaze to the binoculars, I saw the head NCO had drawn a secondary knife with his right hand, and held it aloft, at arm's length, the point skyward. In a fluid movement, he flung it into the table before him. His supporters drew their knives and stabbed their tables. The corpse's supporters held their knives, pommels on the tables and points up. It was a vote. By my count, the corpse won by two. The head NCO looked around the gathered forces, nodding. He grasped his knife, his knife fully, rocked it a few times, freed it from the table, and sheathed it without looking. The corpse's supporters rose and carried her away. The man, his chest puffed, lowered his chin and looked out the tops of his eyes at the departing NCOs. His gaze shifted and found its way once more toward us. Fear again passed through me. An owl shrieked over my head and took flight, flying low over both TDF and Chaos forces as it scoured the hillside for prey. The man said something to his supporters as he watched the owl circle overhead. They all rose, replaced their knives, and left. I turned and saw Neva had returned to her observation post. I broke silence and said, It's over. They just voted to yield. You're sure, Neva said, her eyes still fixed through binoculars on the man below. I'm sure. He said something before they broke that I didn't catch, but... I'm sure it's finished. Neva lowered her binoculars and looked at me, nodding as she said, I'll relay the report. Get a few winks. We'll wake you if anything exciting starts happening again. 
I gratefully crept back off the line to a dugout we had made under a tree. The night was blissfully cooling off. I laid back, finding I couldn't sleep. My mind replayed what I had seen, picking up nuances of movement and gesture. Having only the one sense, my mind interpolated as it tried to fill in the audio gaps. Again, a skill I reliably demonstrated. The senior NCO, Mike, had been hoping to hold this camp together indefinitely. We survived the ambush at Three Roads, held firm during the TDF assault at Donsburg. And why? Because we have always been a cohesive unit. We have always stuck by and cared for each other. Now I hear murmurings of abandoning not only our post, but each other. This is no different than being under attack. Are these harsh times? Of course. But we will persevere. The woman, now a corpse, had replied, Mike, this war is lost. We are suffering and making a target of ourselves for nothing. The officers have been removed. We're defeated by our own commander. Mike had stiffened then. How dare you, he began. Lisa, the strong Asian corpse yet alive, interrupted him, saying, How dare I what, Mike? Speak truth? Chaos has cut us loose. He is testing us. Bull, he's testing us. He's given up on his armies. On us, Lisa replied. All the more reason for us to hold on. When he has attained final victory, he'll reward us for our continued faith, Mike said. Mike, how can you... You've gone off the deep end. It's over, Lisa said. It's not over until we give up, and I am not prepared to do so. Mike raised his arms, sweeping it around those gathered. You all swore fealty to me when chaos called away our officers. You believed in me then. Now a portion of you cower away from a promise because of some small hardships. You cowards. And worse among cowards is a traitor, he said, spitting the words. His hand jabbed the air toward Lisa. She bolted to her feet, hands on her hands of her compatriots, trying desperately to hold her back. You call me a coward and a traitor? Who did I have to cover for at Three Roads when he cowered in fear? I protected your reputation that day, but no longer. You petak, she spat. I could see the ire flash through Mike's face, something I had missed the first time through. How? Mike said, stuttering and stumbling over his reply. How dare you spread such? Such what? Lisa again spat, dragging her compatriots with her as she surged forward. Such statements of fact! She let her friends pull her back down. I saw indecision passing over Mike's face as it condensed to action. She speaks truth, of course, Mike said. It was an interesting approach. My will failed me that day, and she covered. Picked up the slack as any of us would do for another. But now she only confirms what I have said. Would a comrade so sabotage our leader, so try to break us apart? You sniveling coward, Lisa spat. The fate of the traitor in war is that of the grave, Mike exclaimed, using the force of his words to speed the flicking through of a knife. I saw it slowly tumbling. Along his blade was one word. Vengeance. This Mike was as unbalanced as Lisa had indicated. Brave, poor Lisa, now dead. Her comrades bolted to their feet. No attempt was made to hide on which side they now stood. 
Mike's people read his signal as he said aloud, You know I spoke truth. Traitors deserve death. She had been meeting with them, he said, sweeping his arm wide over the hill where we were. She contacted them first, not the other way around. Brought them here days ago. A voice I couldn't see spoke, apparently questioning the veracity of Mike's accusation, if his reply was any measure. Of course they are, his eye pointed directly at me. They watch us even now. Did he really know, or was he bluffing, trying to gain ground while besmirching Lisa's shade? She deserved death for this, but let us remain civil, my comrades. Lower your arms now. Ours, here, in this company, has never been the autocratic way, so let us vote. It was slight, but the disdain was clear on Mike's lips as he forced out the word. He apparently thought his argument convincing enough to gain him the support he needed for his plan. Knives were temporarily sheathed as troops seated themselves. We have a tradition here, no? We all know it well, our credo even. The blade for war, the pommel for peace. Mike pulled out his knife, lifting it high as he said, My vote. He flung the knife, twanging into the table before him. How vote we? Knives were again drawn. Two votes put peace over war. So, this is our way now, Mike added acidly. We give up. A voice I could not see said something. Mike nodded in reply. The vote is good. So be it. Tomorrow we disband. His friends now carried off the corpse of Lisa. When only Mike's troops were left, he said, We will not wait until tomorrow. We do it tonight. Get your people together. We force the tedious hand in one hour. I sat bolt upright as full understanding of Mike's words hit me. They would attack. Without knowing it, Mike would set in motion exactly what he wanted, a slaughter. His forces would be decimated by our lines of fire so precisely set, those who had voted peace would assume we had attacked and so spend themselves in what they believed to be defense. They would all perish. I looked around, this knowledge fresh and strong in my mind, only to realize I was once again in one of Eric's spare bedrooms. One reality contradicted another, contradicted another, and another as all the dreams of the night made themselves present alongside what I observed as reality. My body ached from exertion and a mountain of dreamed exhaustion. I was in a cold, clammy sweat. I was breathing heavily, my pulse rapid. This was real. I was here and safe. It was centuries after the insurrection, after the tedious exile. The dream still crashed against my conscious mind as strong waves on the shore, making its true boundary impossible to discern. I felt the sleeping mat beneath me, the sheet over me. With these I grounded myself. Suddenly I was aware it was light outside, the sun's rays streaking in through the double windows of the room. I could hear movement in the hall. I was awake, yet I knew without knowing it was Eric going downstairs. Of course, who else could it have been? Those dreams and how real they seemed stay with me for the next two days, at which something else 
happened that shook my reality to its core. And those were chapters 36, Between Lovers, 37, Professor Christopher, and 38, Dreams. Again, you can find these podcasts on iTunes, on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to narclaninc.com and download the raw MP3 files in case you don't do the podcast thing, but you do have an MP3 player. Please connect with me on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, or email me at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. I would love to hear from you, and if I get enough messages from you, my listeners, I will do a mailbag and reply to as many as I possibly can. In the meantime, what you can do to help support this podcast and me as a writer is to share it. Please share this podcast with a friend, a family member, a co-worker, someone who might be interested in this type of story. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week, and we will see you again next time.